Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Brooks. I'll be bringing the word this morning. Hope to get you out of here before the fireworks start at 9.30 p.m. Some of you are like, that frightens you. I, true story. This morning, I'm preaching the first service. And every turn, every turn around, see that, that uh, digital clock there where it says 9.53? Typically, that's a countdown clock for me. So typically, so I'm, I'm on into the message and I'm looking like I got nine minutes and nine seconds left and I just keep going and I'm going and I'm going. It's like, I got nine minutes and 13 seconds left. Wait a minute, doing the math. So we went a little bit long last, last uh, service. So we're going to get you out of here before the fireworks start. I'm going to shorten the message here. I don't have all day, but I do have about 40 minutes and we're going to bring the word of God here shortly. I want to thank all of you for coming. Thank you so much for being here and for your partnership in the gospel. See, the body of Christ is a family of believers. Each person in the body of Christ has recognized their need for Jesus and Jesus' provision for the forgiveness of their sin, but also his righteousness imputed or gifted to us. And we have the Holy Spirit and we have eternal life and we have one another. God's put us in his family as adopted sons and daughters, children of God. And Paul says to the church in Philippi, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So God has given you gifts. He has given you a Holy Spirit. He's given you time. He's given you talent. He's given you treasure. And we use all of those things to bring him glory. So thank you for your giving. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your prayers and for being a part of this body so we can demonstrate and declare the gospel to our community, but also the nations. I want to give you an opportunity uh, to participate together with one another in something called Faith in Action. Faith in Action is a service day, which will be um, July 18th, July 18th, everyone in the church, we are not having our regular services. So if you come to the 8.30 or 8 service typically or the 9.30 or uh, the 11 o'clock, we will not be having those regular services. But we will meet here Sunday, July 18th at um, 9.30. We'll have a couple songs of worship, a guiding prayer, and some instructions to be sent out. Now, many community groups have their own projects. They're going to go, they're going to be helping their neighbors, helping different people in the communities and so forth and so on. And if you are not yet, you don't know exactly what you want to do or so forth, I want to encourage you to go to uh, graceb3.org. And there you will see this, uh, see this page, Faith in Action Sunday. You can scroll through that. You're going to see 11 different opportunities which anyone can participate. Some of them are going to be manual labor. And some of you are like, well, I'm not, I just, I'm not good with my hands. I'm not into mulching. I'm kind of, I have health issues, so forth. There are plenty of uh, opportunities that don't involve physical labor. Uh, chalk the sidewalks, the North Liberty Police Station, go shopping for donations for uh, for local stores, for people in need. Also, making lunch, do activities with kids at Faith Academy. There's a whole bunch of different projects. So I encourage you to check those out. Or in your community groups, come up with your own initiatives. And, uh, and the deadline for sign-up on those is the end of the day next Sunday, uh, July 11th. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. So um, the last live stream, live stream was a necessity. Right now, we are live streaming. So people online... Thank you for joining us. We've been doing this since the pandemic. It's been a blessing. But the live stream is going away. 
going away. I'm waving at the camera for those who are watching us online right now. The last live stream that we'll have is July 11th. We're still going to be streaming our services. You'll be able to upload those on Sunday night or, or next Monday morning. So uh, the reason for that is, is people's attendance online is declining. But we also, more importantly, want to encourage those who are online to come back. Uh, it's good to be face to faith. There's a just to see your face, to to see that the people that uh, are struggling with the same things you're struggling like th- with, they're real people, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the last Sunday for the live stream. Everything else will still be online. Uh, it just won't be live. So I want to encourage you to come back and thank you for joining us. We are continuing our series in the book of Jonah, and if you've been following along. You know that God called a prophet named Jonah to go to a wicked city, a pagan city, Nineveh, capital of Assyria. Jonah heard God's message and said, nope, it's not happening. So he hops a boat to Tarshish on the furthermost part of the globe going west. God intervenes, sends a storm. Jonah's thrown overboard. He's swallowed by a whale. The whale pukes. And then Jonah actually is obedient and goes to Nineveh. And that's what you heard last week. You heard last week. So what we're going to do is we're going to see how Jonah's idol comes to the surface. Comes to the surface. It's in full display. Chapter 4, the first, four, first couple verses are pretty ugly in terms of Jonah's heart. But before we get there... I want to ask you a question that's a diagnosis, a heart diagnosis for our own hearts, because this is where the sermon is headed this morning. And the question is this, can you love something too much? What do you think? Yes. Happy Independence Day, by the way. Can you love your country too much? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. By the way, love of country is a good thing. It's called patriotism. And, and we all should be grateful for the freedoms that we have in the nation. We should celebrate our independence, rightfully so. But we're going to take a look at Jonah's love for country this morning. But it wasn't just a love for country. It was an inordinate love for country. An inordinate love for country. Do you remember what Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish? One of the things that God revealed to him? Jonah revealed that he had an idolatry problem. Here's one of the things that he prayed in in repentance when he was in the belly of the fish. And this was a couple weeks ago. Jonah prayed, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah understood. He Sitting there in the belly of the whale, thinking to himself, what have I done? I've forsaken the steadfast love of God because I have an idol issue. And he repented, right? He repented. And it's all good. And then idol idol never came back. Not so much. You see, that's the thing about idols. They come back. They're hard to kill. It's kind of like Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th horror movie uh, franchise. You can't kill the guy. He wears a mask because he's ugly and you just can't kill him. And even when you kill him, he comes back. And he wreaks havoc. That's what an idol does. We know our idols sometimes. We repent of our idols. And then they come back. So we're going to take a look at idolatry today. The persistent problem of idolatry. We're going to see Jonah's idol front and center. It's terrible. It's ugly. And it has consequences. And we're going to make some connections with maybe our idols. Which might be different. Are probably different than Jonah's. We're going to examine the evidence for idolatry. How do you know that an idol is there? Secondly, we're going to take a look at the motive. What do our motives reveal about our idols? And the third thing we're going to take a look at is the cure for idolatry. So let's take a look at the text. We are in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. 
and verses 1 through 5. Let me read it. We'll pray and we'll get to it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, just take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat in it under the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Father, we thank you that we are allowed to worship in a a nation that's free and we have the freedom to worship you here today. We praise you for our independence and we thank you that we have the word of God. Father, speak through the word of God. Would you show us the idols of our hearts that we might bring them to you, that we might not forsake your steadfast love, but we might repent and receive grace. Father, speak to our hearts. Use the preaching of your word. And Father, preach to my own heart through your word that I might worship you and worship you alone so that Christ might be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's examine the evidence for the idolatry that's in Jonah's heart. And by way of application, we'll see maybe what indicates that we have issues as well. So let's take a look. First of all, last week, Pastor Jason ended with this text. You remember Jonah finally is obedient, reluctantly, but he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. He preaches to the Ninevites, three days journey. He gives them a very abbreviated message and really, quite frankly, not terribly gospel-centric. It's essentially this, 40 days and you're toast. That's it. God's going to overturn the city. That's all he said. 40 more days and God's got to overturn the city. And take a look at the results. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Everyone repented. Everyone. The king made the cows fast. Okay, so imagine. This is your pets, your parakeets, your dogs, your cats, your cattle. They too have to repent. Now, that's not possible, but they require a fast from everyone. They all repent. And so what does God do? He relents. He relents. This is, I believe, the most successful preaching campaign recorded in the scriptures. This hardly ever happens. Typically what happens is God tells a prophet, I want you to deliver this message to this group of people. The prophets in obedience go to this group and this group of people, and then the people stone them. Then the people reject them. Then the people persecute them. Not everyone and their pets repented. That never happens. But it does here. The entire city of Nineveh repents. It's the most successful example of a preaching campaign in Scripture. You say, well, Brooks, you know, Pentecost was a pretty big deal. Yeah, 3,000. This is over 120,000 people. And this was everyone, not just a select partial group of the people in Jerusalem. So I want you to envision, if you were successful in what's most important to you, what would that look like? Think best case scenario. So if you're a salesman, you're the national sales leader. Uh, you're, um, you're, you're a doctor. Maybe you invent some procedure that saves thousands of lives, millions of lives, whatever, whatever it is. I want you to think if you're an athlete, 
you win the Olympic gold. Whatever it is, think of the best case scenario in terms of what you're striving for, goals. Now, you got that in your mind? Now, you know the part after the Olympics or the Super Bowl when the MVP gets the microphone shoved in their face and the reporter says, how do you feel? Which is always, I thought, a really stupid question, but they ask it anyway. How do you feel? And they say, I feel awesome. This is the best day of my life. I want to thank my coaches. I want to thank my teammates. I want to give a shout out to the man upstairs. Jesus, thank you for giving me all my gifts. All glory goes to you. And I'm going to Disney World. You know, that, that, that whole thing. Okay, now I want you to imagine the person, the microphone is shoved in their face, you're, the microphone shoved in your face, and here's how you reply. How do you feel about your, your, your most awesome success? I'm so angry, I want to die. Has anyone ever heard that? Does that ever occur after winning, being the MVP of the World Series, the Super Bowl, or, or anything? No, it never happens. It never happens. But that's what Jonah does. Let's take a look. So everyone repents. He is a outstanding success as a preacher. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Not, it doesn't just say it, it displeased Jonah. It displeased him exceedingly. I love that word, exceedingly. He's really frosted at his success. And he was angry. And then he prays, Lord, this is what I said when I was not in my country. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here's what Jonah reveals. He lets us in on why he was disobedient in the first place. He knew God would relent. He knew that if he preached and told these people that God was displeased with their injustice, that there was the possibility that they'd repent. And then if they repented, God was going to pour out his grace and mercy on them. And that's exactly why I wouldn't go. He's ticked. He is ticked off. Oh, but it gets better. It gets better. Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, just kill me. Take my life. For it's better for me to die than live. He is so upset that his reason for living is evaporated. This is an inordinate type of anger. Everybody gets angry. Everybody gets angry. But this is full-blown idolatry. Full-blown idolatry. So let's take a look at what is going on here. And then as we look at here, what's going on here, excuse me, my microphone keeps popping on me here. Uh, as we look at what is going on, uh, allow your own heart to be examined. So yeah, your, your task is not to preach to a pagan nation, but it is to, to witness necessarily to people who don't know Jesus. Whatever your task is, I want you to think about what angers you. What angers you? What causes you to despair of living? That's what we're going to take a look at, examining the motive. So, and the Lord said, do, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Here's what, here's what God is asking. Jonah, is your, is your anger legit? Is it righteous? I know you're angry, but do you do well? Is it a good anger? See, here's the thing. Anger is not necessarily always sinful. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. You and I, we are all created in the image of God. So when we see injustice, when we see injustice, we are hardwired to respond with indignation towards 
injustice. Now, I'd like to say that most of my anger is righteous indignation. It would be a lie. It's not. Most of the anger that comes forward in my life typically is sinful or selfish anger. That's what God is doing with Jonah. Jonah, check your heart. Heart check. What's the root of your anger? What's going on here? Do you do well? Do you do well to be angry? Is your anger righteous? Sin is a fruit. The anger in Jonah's life at this moment is revealing something which is at a root level. And what God is doing is asking a question so that he might dig and that he might understand what's at the root of his problem. I want you to turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, I'm going to read it. And we won't spend a lot of time there, but it's a parallel passage. It's a similar question that James asked the readers. And it's the same question that God asked Jonah. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you don't have. So you murder and you covet. You can't obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Now pay attention to verse 4. It's interesting. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you suppose that there's no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. Now, it's not typically viewed as a compliment when someone calls you an adulterous person, right? But is there any reference to sexual immorality in this passage? No. No. He's not talking about sexual immorality. He's talking about spiritual immorality. He's talking about idolatry. God causes his spirit to dwell within us jealously. He yearns for our affection exclusively. He is to be our chief affection, our chief love. Anything else is to be secondary. When we love something more than we love God, we have just stepped into the realm of idolatry. and, And here's how you know. Here's how you know. Whatever gets between you and the object of your affection is a threat. And you become either inordinately angry or inordinately anxious. What causes you to be angry? When do you get most angry? I'll tell you, this is hopefully something which is becoming less and less true of me, but it was definitely true a while ago, not that long ago. Honestly, still is. When I feel like I've been disrespected. So I don't get angry over people robbing God of his glory. I get angry over people robbing me of my glory. That's what makes me most angry. It's it's ugly. Idolatry is the sin is the fruit. Idolatry is the root. Let's take a look. Jonah is asked a question by God. Do you do well to be angry? And what's Jonah's response? Take a look at the text. Go back to the text. What does Jonah say? Nothing. He turns and walks away from God. He doesn't answer the question. So he doesn't give us an answer or give God an answer. He won't respond. He just goes off and puts a lawn chair at the edge of Nineveh and waits for them to burn, hoping God's going to change his mind. He doesn't respond. So we have to discern from what he prayed what's going on in his heart. So let's take a look. Jonah's prayer. Jonah's prayer. Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're gracious and merciful, slow to abound and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore, kill me. Kill me now. What's going on? 
what's going on, Jonah doesn't want to see those people receive mercy. He doesn't want to receive, he doesn't want them to receive God's mercy. So what's he do? His actions. Take a look at his actions. Verse five. So Jonah, he doesn't answer God's question. Do you do well to be angry? Instead, he goes out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there and sat under the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Here's what he does. He goes to the edge of the city, hoping that God's going to change his mind. And he wants to be adequate distance from the city so that when the fire and brimstone comes, that he doesn't receive the consequences, but he sure wants to watch. And he's, what's going on here? I think that bass guitar is going to blow up. If we could get somebody in the, just a, you hear that? Thank you. Um, I was talking about fire and brimstone. I just hear this electric noise (laughs) growing behind me. So it's getting louder. We're all going to die. The kids are starting to freak out right now. (laughs) Sorry. That is pretty loud. Thank you, Steve. By the way, it's Steve's last day. Thanks, Steve, for coming up here. (laughs) Yeah, what's going on? That's what we're asking. It's a good thing this isn't live. Oh, never mind, it is. Hi. You just roll with it. Thank you, Steve. Um, All right, where were we? So, uh, he wants to see these people burn, literally. It's not even a metaphor. He just wants to see these people burn. Why? What's going on? These people are an existential threat to his people. This is Assyria. If God judges them, this nation loses its power and its foothold in the Middle East as a powerful nation, a rival nation. If God spares them, they rise to prominence and prosperity and they become a literal existential threat to his people. That's what he's afraid of. That's what he's afraid of. Turns out, Jonah's a nationalist. That's his idol. Happy Independence Day. Do you know what Jonah's God is? The love of his nation. That's his most important love. It's his chief desire. To see the nation of Israel be great. Assyria is a rival nation. Assyria is an existential threat. You see... God has an agenda. Here's God's agenda. That the gospel would be proclaimed throughout the nations. That God would use Israel as a light, a city on a hill, so that all people would be drawn to the throne of grace. That's his agenda. But here's Jonah's agenda. I want Israel to be great. I want Israel to be great. I don't want any rival nation being besting us. The love of country becomes his God. And you see it in ugly colors, not red, white, and blue, but just ugly colors. That's his God. Oh, and Yahweh too. But what's most important is that Israel is great. What's of lesser importance is Yahweh's greatness. He's got his priorities flipped. This is what idolatry does. So let's take a look at the indicators of nationalism, which is a form of tribalism. So you might not be a nationalist in the sense that your chief idol is this, but you might be a tribalist. In other words, where do you derive your identity? For Jonah, he's a Hebrew. Remember what they asked him in the boat? Who are you? And they asked about six different questions, and he leads with, I'm a Hebrew. 
That's his top identity. Who are you? Who are you? How do you identify yourself? Could be a, a tribe. Well, I'm white. I'm black. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm this. I'm that. Is that how you lead? Or do you say, I'm a child of God, chosen by God, redeemed through Christ? How do, what's your identity? Indicators of tribalism. First of all, you equate success of your tribe, your nation, with God's kingdom. In other words, if your nation prospers, well, that means that God's kingdom is prospering, like they're one and the same. Like they're one and the same. Let me give you an example of a conversation which reveals modern-day Christian nationalism. Uh, A conversation between a theologian by the name of Michael Horton and a personal friend of his who is a politician. He didn't name this person, didn't call that, didn't say he's he's a senator from wherever, just said they're a a politician in Washington. He's having this conversation before the election in 2016, and this particular politician said that America is the last hope for Christianity. America is the last hope for Christianity. To which theologian Michael Horton said, you mean that Christianity is the last hope for America? I mean, you, you said that wrong, right? He says, no, no. America is the last hope for Christianity. What do you think of that? So if America, America continues to go down the cultural spiral of Romans chapter 1 of debauchery, then there's no hope for Christianity. What do you think? I'll tell you what I think. It angers me that, that there's a Christian that actually says that in leadership. It makes me mad. Some of you are like, well, Brooks, do you do well to be angry? Fair question. Yes, I do. And here's why. Because it robs the glory from God. As if, as if the creator of the universe and his glory and the advancement of the kingdom is dependent on which knucklehead is elected in 2024. Are you serious? Really? That's the criteria for whether or not Christianity advances? The last time I checked in Matthew 16, Jesus said, and I quote, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the kingdom. Unless, of course, the wrong guy gets elected in America 2,000 years from now. What? What? That is patently absurd. But this always happens. This always happens. Back in the 1930s, all missionaries were expelled from China. And everyone thought, oh no, China's lost. No one will ever hear the gospel now. There are more Christians in China today than there are in America. In 1979, there were only 500 Christians in Iran. And then the Shah was overthrown and the West was driven out and it's under Sharai law strict traditional Muslim interpretation of the Quran, and everyone said, oh no, now they'll never hear the gospel. Guess what nation is the fastest growing Christian population? 
at a rate of 5.7% annually. America? Wrong. Iran. There are over a million Christ followers in Iran. The kingdom of God is not dependent on political ideology or the righteousness of some leader in some country. Here's the truth. The kingdom of God, if Jesus should tarry, his return should tarry, the kingdom of God will advance and fill the earth long after America is on the ash heap of formerly great nations. That's the truth. If you have an inordinate fear that if your party doesn't win or our nation somehow takes a lesser stage in in the world that somehow Christianity is going to fall and taper away, you are a full-blown nationalist, just like Jonah. You may not... Well, it's probably revealed in the fact that you get really, really angry when things don't go your way. Or, or you get really, really super anxious if they don't go your way. Those are indicators of idolatry. You equate success of your tribe with God's kingdom. You're also unable or unwilling to love your enemies. Case in point, Jonah can't love the Ninevites. Who is it in our culture that you have a difficult time loving? It's those people, right? And who, again, are those people? Well, they're just the people not in your tribe. The people that you believe are bringing this nation down. And by the way, they might be. But that's not relevant to whether or not we're supposed to love them. What did Jesus say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, yeah, but Jesus, don't you understand what they're doing to our nation? Jesus is like, yeah, I pretty much get it. I know exactly what's going on. It's quite irrelevant. Thank you. Just do what I say. But that's not what we do. We stump. And we pout. We say, I'm angry enough to die. I want to watch him burn. God's like, well, he probably doesn't rub his temples, but if he did, it would look like this. He's like, oh, I had mercy on you. I just want you to have mercy on others. And then lastly, we gloss over our own tribe's sins and we fixate on the sins of others. This is so, so common. You see this in your own life? Whatever party, whatever tribe you affiliate with, you're looking at your nation and, oh, America, we, I love my country. By the way, love of country is a good thing. It's called patriotism. But if you look at your country and you cannot stand to hear faults that your country has in history or even currently, you may be struggling with nationalism. Oh, but here's the thing. We can point out all these other countries and see how awful they are or different tribes within our own country, but you have to be able to see our own sins. See, that's the thing about when when God is your God and not, not some tribe or some nation, then you're able to see yourself and your tribe honestly. And it doesn't threaten you because you recognize your righteousness is not, is not bound up in the success of your group or your nation or your nation. So what are you in danger of loving too much? It may not, nationalism may not be your deal. You probably love your country. You're going to go to the fireworks tonight and wear your red, white, and blue, but you're not freaking out because your country's not headed in the direction that you, you think it should. You know God's sovereign and it doesn't upset you, but something does. What causes fights and quarrels in your life? What causes inordinate anxiety to spike or inordinate anger? What is it? I don't know, but 
if you allow the Lord to ask you the question, Brooks, do you do well to be angry right now? Do you do well to be overly anxious right now? That will give you a clue at where your heart is set in terms of its love and allegiance. Here's what happens. The consequences of idolatry in any form looks like this. Number one, transactional relationship with God and others. When we are worshiping something other than Christ, we may be believers, quote unquote. We may, quote unquote, be justified in Christ. We may recognize the creator of the universe and Jesus is our savior. We may have all that. Check, check, check. Got those boxes checked. But when he is not the Lord of our lives, when he's not the Lord of our lives, when he's not the king, then whatever we lift up and exalt, that becomes our functional God. And yes, God exists. But what's God's purpose? To get us what we want. It's transactional. So yesterday, Stacey and I went to Dane's Dairy. We're driving through the drive-thru. We ordered a couple cones. I have a transactional relationship with the lady that opens the window. I give her my money and she gives me the ice cream. So what's God for? Is he just to get you your ice cream? You see, if you have a relationship with God in which you will worship him, in other words, I'll give you my money, God. Just give me the ice cream. And God says, no, you've had too much today. Well, then I'm not going, I'm going to pout. I'm going to go over to the edge of Nineveh and I'm going to wait for them to burn. That, that's an indicator that you have a functional God which, and his name's not Jesus. So what is it that causes you to flee from God? That, if you're not getting it, you use God. And here's the thing, we use other people too. When we're engaged in idolatry, we use people to increase our happiness quotient. That is, help us get what we feel we must have to have meaning in life. But the minute they won't help us get that, that, we see them as a threat to be eliminated or at least avoided. And then we can't love our enemies. And here's the reality. Sometimes your enemies, you're married to them. Why? Because they're hindering your acquisition of your idols. Yes? transactional relationship with God and others. Secondly, your idols will consume you. Your idols will consume you. This is an amazing quote. I found it in uh, Tim Keller's book, Encounters with Jesus. He's quoting um, a man by the name of David Foster Wallace. He's passed away recently, but he was a postmodern writer. He's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. Very famous writer, um, award-winning writer, and, and he was speaking at a, at a college called Kenyon College. So this is his commencement address, and it's on worship. Again, he's not a Christian. He's not a believer in God, but it's on worship. I want you to listen to what he says. This is powerful. He says, everybody worships. Everybody. The only choice we get to worship, only get, the only choice is what we worship. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you're, you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll never, you'll need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. If you worship your intellect, you'll be seen 
to be seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It's their unconscious. There are default settings. What blows my mind is he's not a believer. This guy understands worship better than most Christians. And here's his take. If you worship anything other than God, that idol will consume you. This man took his life three to four years after he said those words. Why? Because his idols consumed him. He was speaking from personal experience. Here's the deal about idolatry. If you have something other than Christ on the throne of your life, it will promise you more than it will deliver. And whatever it delivers, it will never be satisfying. But here's the dirty little secret the idol never tells you. It will take everything from you. It will decimate you. It'll ruin your life. It'll ruin your soul. It'll ruin your soul. So as we transition, as we close, now most of this, the cure is next week, but I I don't want to end on such a depressing note. So a couple things, three things. First of all, bring your complaint to God. So you're angry, angry enough to die sometimes. You're anxious so anxious that you're freaked out and you're just scared to death of your future. Bring that complaint to God. That's the one thing Jonah does right. Jonah does bring his complaint to God. Asaph is a great example. Write this down in your notes for future studies. Psalm 73. It's another great example of someone who's really angry and complains to God. But unlike Jonah, you actually see him turn a corner. So bring your complaint to God. Secondly, Examine your motives. God says to Jonah, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Allow that question to permeate your heart and think, what is the source of, what am I really angry about? What am I so anxious about? What is it that I want that I'm not getting? Why am I angry at this person? So angry that I I just, I want to, well, at least metaphorically, I want to choke him. I don't really want to choke him. Well, maybe you do really want to. Why? What are they preventing you from getting? That's a clue. That's a clue as to what it is you are worshiping. What it is I'm worshiping. Okay, so examine your motives. And then lastly, look to the cross. Look to the cross. Here's the thing. Idols promise more than they deliver, and they always take more than you think they will. Jesus is not that way. Jesus is not that way. Oh, he, Jesus is, he's all about full disclosure. Here's his disclosure. If you follow me, you have to hate everything and everyone in comparison to love for me. I want all of you. So I'm, on the front end, I'm demanding everything. I'm demanding your sexuality. I'm demanding your money. I'm demanding your relationships. I'm demanding your family. I'm demanding your recreation. I, w- I want it all. I want it all. I want you to forsake everything and follow me. So he's a full disclosure Messiah. I want everything. But here's here's the thing. He gives you everything. He gives you everything. He makes you an heir of all things in Christ. And here's the thing. The things that he gives you, you'll never lose. You'll never lose. You'll lose your family. You're going to go or they're going to go. Someone's going. 
You'll lose your wealth. You can't take it with you. You'll lose your power. All of your accolades, no one will remember. What's your great-great-grandpa's name? Most of you don't know. No one will remember you. Except Jesus. He knows you by name. He called you by name. He gives you his spirit. He gives you his righteousness. And everything he gives you will never be taken away. He gives you mercy. You and I are nothing but Ninevites who have received the grace of God. And we are to glory in that grace and return glory and honor to the one who saved us. Trust him. Go to him, examine your motives, and look to the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Jesus, there are so many things that come between us and you. Lord, would you be gracious enough to show us what those things are? The relationships that we have, the passions that we have, they're all good and they're from you, but sometimes we make them more important than they ought to be. Lord, would you help us to answer the question, if we do well to be angry, if we do well to be anxious? And Lord, would you help us to repent to turn from those things, to turn from those idols, those vain idols, so that we don't forsake the steadfast love of God. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus, who took the consequences of my idolatry, who bore our sin on the cross, Father, who is separated from you, and who has given us the gift of his righteousness and eternal life. Father, for those who are struggling right now, I pray that you would be their rock that you would be their conqueror, that you would be their chief love. Lord, the only way that we can get rid of our secondary loves is if that love for you overpowers. So, Lord, overpower us with your love. Open our eyes that we might see the height and the breadth and the depth of your love that transcends understanding, that we might be filled with the fullness of God, Jesus, so that we might live for you and bring glory to you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, go in grace, and we will see you next week.